Well, you may have seen the latest uh, news. It was just released day before yesterday, Good Friday, of course. Um, Researchers released the latest results of 15 years of testing on the Shroud of Turin. For those of you unfamiliar with the ongoing debate, a shroud or a burial cloth was discovered in the 13th century, which was claimed to be the burial cloth of Christ. You know, the one that Jesus left behind in the tomb on that first Easter um, Sunday after his resurrection. Cloth is about 14 feet long, three feet wide. If you examine it closely, you can see the faint image of a man who was apparently beaten, uh, blood flowing from his head, his right side pierced, and bearing the marks of, of Roman crucifixion. The shroud has actually traveled, actually traveled from place to place, but it ended up in Turin, Italy in 1578, where it remains uh, today in the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Now, interest in the shroud escalated when it was first photographed in 1898. You see, by taking a picture of the shroud and looking at the negative, the, the figure of that man almost jumps off the cloth. I mean, his, his, his wounds become clearly visible. And besides, he looks like Jesus. As a result, perhaps no artifact in history has been more examined and debated than the Shroud of Turin. For example, in 1988, a piece of the cloth was carefully trimmed from the edge and, and, and carbon dated to about the 12th or 13th century. A fraud, they said, not to be deterred. Shroudies, as believers in the cloth are called, claimed that the piece of cloth provided for dating was actually later woven into the cloth to help preserve it. In 2005, Nathan Wilson, from an English professor from Moscow, Idaho, uh, I'm not sure where he got these credentials, but said that the shroud was a fake adding fuel to the debate. He claimed that someone in the Middle Ages painted the image of a crucified man on a piece of glass, wrapped it in cloth, and then left it in the sun to bake for a few days. Such a process, he suggests, would produce the image. Not to be outdone, shroudies point to the three-dimensional nature of the image as well as the fact that, that the blood and and, and pollen from plants only found around Jerusalem have actually been found on, on the cloth. And that brings us to the latest news, you know, from day before yesterday. Th- that 15-year series of, of tests using infrared light suggests the shroud actually does date uh, to the time of Christ. Well, at least uh, to somewhere between uh, 200 B.C. and 200 A.D., which fits perfectly with the time of Jesus. So, is it really his? And the debate rages. Why? Because people desperately want some physical evidence pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you won't believe until you receive some empirical evidence. If only, if only I could put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and put my hand uh, in his side. 
And Jesus was real, crucified, risen, leaving uh, behind this burial cloth as, as physical evidence, or, you know, he wasn't. And deceived followers are simply perpetuating a myth. The physical evidence actually proves it, they say. Both sides, you see, understand the Christian faith rests on the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death without resurrection, well, let's face it, just would not be that fantastic. But death followed by life with lots of witnesses, now, now that's a story worth telling. So, my question for you is really quite basic this Easter Sunday morning. As Christians gather uh, around the globe on this high point of the Christian calendar, here's a question. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps you're holding out for some proof. Your response, you see, to the claim of resurrection marks you as either a devoted follower of Jesus or maybe an indifferent skeptic, don't know, don't really care, or maybe a, a mocking cynic. The indispensability of the resurrection to the Christian faith is actually demonstrated by the way it is consistently found in the preaching of the early church. I mean, read through the book of Acts, and you will find that it is a central tenet of the faith. If the resurrection can be proven to be fake, myth, the stuff of legend, for example, if the real tomb of Jesus and the real shroud were uncovered outside Jerusalem with the body of Jesus still in both, that is, still in the tomb and still in the shroud, then Christianity would fall. I want you to know, if they found the body of Jesus, I'd quit. I wouldn't look for some explanation as to why Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. I'd quit. I'd even encourage you to quit. So, let's look this morning at one of those early Christian sermons in the book of Acts by a guy named Paul. And I've chosen this particular account because I believe that it fits our current culture quite well. <laughs> and it also illustrates the various responses to the resurrection. So you can turn to Acts chapter 17. And, and, and while you're turning there, let me give you the context of the story. Paul is actually on his second missionary journey. He and, and those with him have traveled throughout Asia Minor, that's present-day Turkey. They, they've, they, they've sailed across the northern edge of the Aegean Sea onto the continent of Europe, and they established the first beachhead for the gospel on this continent in a little town called Philippi. And see, we're actually studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. From there, they traveled down to Thessalonica, where a church was founded, then on to Berea. Um, Paul left Luke, uh, his physician, in Philippi, and, then, and Silas and Timothy in, in Berea with some instructions to join him a little later in, in Athens. So Paul then traveled to Athens, and at this point, he is in Athens alone. 
And it's there that we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, um, verse 16. Look at it with me. So now while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and, and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And, and then Luke adds this, and now all the Athenians and, and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or, or hearing something new. In other words, hey, this is new, this Jesus and the resurrection stuff. Why don't you tell us about it, but don't expect us to believe it. Here's the outline of the story as we jump into it. We're going to see where Paul preached and then to whom he preached. We just read about that. And then what Paul preached. Kind of fun. I get to preach on a sermon. And then we're going to see um, some responses to what Paul had to say. So let's start in verse 16 to see where Paul was at this time. We know it was Athens, which was a large free city uh, in the Roman Empire. Free, They were free to, to govern themselves in southeastern um, Achaia. It was an important city both then and now. It's the capital of Greece today. It was a city with a great educational and scientific and philosophical heritage. I mean, we're talking like, you know, names maybe you've heard of them, Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno, all were either from there or taught there. Now, certainly it was past its political prime at this time, but it was still a leading city of Greek culture and art and literature. For example, it was on the Acropolis, this high flat hill that the Parthenon was built, which, which still exists um, today. It had this place called the Agora, which is the marketplace. It had the Areopagus, which is where in the past the civic leaders gathered to rule the city. You may know the Areopagus as Mars Hill, because it literally means the hill of Ares, who is the god of war, which brings us to another important point. This particular city was full of pagan idolatry. I mean, its patron goddess was Athena, goddess of wisdom. There was Zeus and Apollo and Uranus and Aphrodite and Artemis and Eris and, and Hades and Poseidon, just to name a few. And I do mean just a few, because... The, the city full of idols. They could literally be found lining the streets. One early writer, some guy named Petronius, visited Athens in the first century, and he was startled by the excessive number of gods in this city. In fact, he later wrote about it and said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man, and he was actually quite right about that statistically. The city's population about that time was about 10,000 people, but it's estimated that there were 30,000 idols, three idols for every one man. Why so many gods? Well, I like what one author suggests. It takes an infinite number of gods to fill the shoes of the true God. 
Seeing all of these idols as Paul got there did not startle him. It distressed him. Actually, the, the word there is provoked. And it means angered. He was stirred in his heart to righteous indig indignation. He was angry over the city's idolatry, which is kind of interesting to, to think about. I mean, tourists visit Athens by the millions today to view that, that very impressive art and, and, and architecture. In fact, it's on my bucket list. I'd love to, to go there. But Paul was not impressed because he understood the idolatry behind the impressive architecture. I want you to think about the similarity that exists with our own country. We too are a nation full of idolatry. The, the, the founding fathers would, would actually be turning would actually be turning over in their graves. Because when they talked about religious freedom, they were not talking about idolatry. They were talking about freedom within the Christian faith. We're a nation full of idolatry. And I'm not talking about things like career or money or fitness or food. We, we, we got that. I mean, I'm talking about the worship of false gods. We live in a country that is quickly becoming steeped in religious pluralism. And it is even lauded. Hey, you can believe whatever you want here. And you can find and, and, and worship about anything and anyone you want. I always, when people say, hey, why don't you just pray to yourselves? I always want to say, no, don't pray to yourselves. You'll, you'll create another God. We live in a modern Athens. And it too, I'm suggesting, should provoke us. You say, well, wait, wait. I mean, shouldn't it sadden us? Yes. Shouldn't it disturb us? Yes. But it should also anger us. Why? Because God is being robbed of his glory. This is what provoked Paul. In, in Romans chapter 1, he said, it, he said it this way. For even though they, people generally speaking, knew God... They did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. <coughs> Professing to be wise, you know, like we in the United States, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's bright. And as a consequence, Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God, the anger, the righteous anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth of the true God in their wickedness. You see, when God is robbed of his glory, it actually makes him angry. And it made Paul angry. And I'm suggesting it ought to make us a bit angry. Now, what are we supposed to do with that anger? Blow up Buddha? No. It ought to motivate us to do something and to tell others about the God they don't know. And talk more about that in just a moment. But for now, let's move to our second point. To whom Paul preached in verses 70 to 21. At the outset, I want you to notice Paul preached. We are being told today 
that, 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 that we're tolerant by allowing people to believe whatever they want to believe, and we are intolerant, especially Christians, if we preach the gospel, that is, if we try to proselytize, if we try to win them to Christ. That's intolerant. Now, that's not intolerant. That's called evangelism. As we know, Paul began to speak first to the Jews and, and to the God-fearing Greeks, that's those who worship the true God, uh, in the synagogue. This was his well-established pattern. He went, it's very interesting, he went to the few uh, to begin with who were prepared to hear. But from there, he went to the general population in the agora, that's that marketplace, to those who were not prepared. Again, I'm just struck by the fact that Paul preached. He had come through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea with his fellow evangelists where they had worked hard day and night, First Thessalonians tells us. <coughs> the truth is they had been severely persecuted and run out of all of those towns. Now Paul is alone. Don't you think that he's earned a, a well-deserved rest, maybe a little R&R? Don't you think it'd be good for him to go down to the beach and catch some, some rays at the, at the Aegean Sea? You know, enjoy the crystal clear blue waters of the Mediterranean Sea? Maybe, maybe visit the Parthenon and maybe catch up on a little sleep and do some reading? Not Paul. I know, Paul kind of had this attitude, I'll sleep when I die. He looked around, saw the idols and the masses of people bowing down to them, and it provoked him to action. So too, when we're walking, I start to say when we're walking around, it's more like when we're walking to the car to drive around. Um, we need to see the people all around us who desperately need Jesus. He sees people flooding the marketplace, the center of Athenian life, and he begins to share the good news with them. Now, among them were some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who, they begin to argue with him. Now, these are two very interesting and, frankly, opposite groups of people. Epicureans saw the pursuit of pleasure as the ultimate goal of life. Not just sensual pleasure, it wasn't really that. It was, it was a pursuit of a life of peace, free from fear. Wouldn't it be nice to just experience a little freedom? That sounds familiar. They were deistic in thought. They didn't deny the existence of God. They just thought the gods had nothing to do with the world. And they also believed that when they died, they just dissolved, that ceased to exist. That sounds familiar. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw ultimate good in self-discipline. Now, get this, rational thinking, reason, being smart, that sounds familiar, and the suppression of desires. Epicureans, they pursued desires, Stoics suppressed it, a bunch of little spocks running around. They were, they, they, they were pantheists. They saw God as the soul of the world. So again, no resurrection. Theirs was almost more like a Hindu or Buddhist belief. Kind of just get absorbed into everything. 
So what these groups were hearing from Paul was new to them, and it didn't fit their ideology. It didn't fit their theology. And so they said, what is it that this idle babbler is saying? Now, that word babbler, is not a, that's not a compliment. It was used to speak of a bird originally that went from <coughs> place to place in the town square, picking up scraps of food, trying to pick up whatever it could to exist. And it came to speak of those who picked up scraps of news, information, trivia, here and there, no depth of understanding. In essence, they were calling Paul a babbling fool. And so they took him to this meeting of the Areopagus. I said earlier, Athens, when it was a free city-state, the Areopagus was that place where the civic rulers, somewhere between three and nine of them, um, ruled the affairs of the city. But by this time in the Roman Empire, it had become just a place to talk. You know, it was the Facebook of the day to discuss religion and philosophy and politics and, and morality. Again, that's the city water cooler. Luke tells us in, in verse 21 that the Areopagus was a place for Athenians and, uh, and foreigners to gather and share the latest ideas. Again, not meant to be a compliment. He tells us they did nothing but listen to the latest fads. And as soon as they heard them, they, got, they discarded them to make room for any other new idea that might come along. This was not a hunger for truth that motivated them, but a desire for novelty. Hey, what's new that can strike my fancy? These were the guys that would have been subscribing to the National Enquirer. And yet... They were an audience ready to hear what Paul had to say. This brings us to our third point, what Paul preached, verses 22 to 31. We haven't read that, so let's look at that. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you, will, uh, that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and, and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and, and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands like the ones that I see all around here, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, he's even determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That they would, this is what he wants, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we shouldn't think, we ought not to think that the divine nature, God, is, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and, and thought of man, like 30,000 of them sitting around here. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And th that man he has appointed... He's, he's, he's furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. 
Now, in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, the author Don Richardson tells a rather fascinating story that took place in this city, Athens, in the 6th century B.C. Apparently, there was a severe plague that had gripped the city. And through a priestess, it was discovered that the city was under a curse because of some atrocities committed by a previous king. The city leaders thought that they had made atonement for the crimes of this former leader, but the prophetess revealed there was one God, an unnamed God, yet to be appeased. And she told them they were to send for a man named Epimenides from a nearby city, Gnosis, who would tell them what they needed to do. Upon arriving, Epimenides stood before the council on Mars Hill at the Areopagus and gave them these instructions. He said, tomorrow at sunrise, I want you to bring a flock of sheep, a band of stonemasons, and a large supply of stones and mortar to the grassy slope at the front of this sacred rock. This sheep must be healthy and of different colors, white and black, and you must prevent them from grazing. Don't give them breakfast after the night's rest. They must be hungry sheep, eager to appease this unnamed God. The elders of Athens quickly complied with the uh, instructions. The next morning, most of the city turned out to watch. Epimenides gave further instructions. Let the sheep go on the grassy slopes. Those who do not graze, we will sacrifice to this unnamed God. If they don't stop for breakfast, they're dead. Several people scoffed. When it comes morning time, you turn them loose on the grassy slope, of course they're going to eat. But amazingly, several sheep lay down on the grass to rest rather than eat. Altars were quickly constructed where the sheep lay. The question was then asked as they're constructing these altars, what name should we inscribe on the altar? Epimenides feared that they would offend this unnamed God if they chose an unsuitable name. So he gave the instructions that the words um, agnostotheo be inscribed on each altar. An unknown God. And sure enough, by the next day, the plague was lifted. Within a week, the sick recovered. You might be interested to know that this particular story is referenced by both um, Plato and Aristotle and is preserved in the writings of a third century historian. Now, whether or not this altar was the one that we read about in Acts chapter 17, don't know. <coughs> the point that Richardson is making in his book is to show that despite the polytheism and idolatry that exists all around the world, people know in their heart of hearts, there's a God. There's one God has set eternity in their hearts. The fact that religion, religions exist in one form or another all over the world is proof of the existence of God. I mean, people have tried forever to stamp out his existence. He's still around. And it's upon this truth that we can build. We can we can introduce the true God to people who know in their heart of hearts. They know. It always amazes me how vehement, how much energy atheists put into denying God. It's like, if he's not there, why? Because they know. And they just need to know who he is.
They need to know this unknown God. And this, you see, is the approach that Paul uses in Acts 17. You see, to this point in his missionary journeys, it looks like most of the time he just went to the synagogue, to those people who were prepared. This people were not prepared. And and so he changes his approach. Um, (coughs) People who were ripe to hear about the coming Messiah just needed to know that Jesus was, was it. This people just needed to know that there is an unknown God to you. He, he, he appeals to their ignorance, which this proud Greek people would have been a bit irritating to them. The passage is particularly important, I think, and applicable for us. You see, in years past, we lived in a country where much of the groundwork, we lived in like a giant synagogue, if you will, where people were prepared to hear and share the gospel. Most people knew who Jesus was and what he had done. They, they, they either didn't believe or chose not to commit their lives to him, but, but evangelism was just talking them into it. Today, people are not as ready to hear. Have you noticed that? The groundwork has not necessarily been laid. Now, listen. Maybe the truth is some of you are here, some of you here honoring a family member to be here this morning because, well, it's Easter, and you need to be prepared. You you need to move from the possibility that God might exist to the reality that God does exist, and His name is Jesus. So let's... Look at Paul's message and how he does that. And if you find yourself in that category, I want to encourage you to pay very careful attention. Paul's message can actually be broken in three parts. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach this whole message. First is the introduction in which he builds common ground. His common ground, this altar of the unknown God. My common ground with you, you know in your heart of hearts that there is a God. You, know, you may not know him. But God has set eternity in your heart. And and you know. And I'd like to tell you about him. That's what Paul does. Good way to start. I'm not going to tell you that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You are. True as that may be, maybe not the best place to start. Paul gets there. You need to repent. We'll get there. But I want you to entertain the possibility that there is a God who exists. From the introduction, we get to the second point, body of the message. He declares the truth of the living God to them. He doesn't start with concepts that they wouldn't understand. He starts with where they are to bring them to truth. What's he tell them? The overarching theme of his message is this. There is a God. And I've got some really good news for you. You can know him. This God that you know in your heart of hearts exists is knowable. He's revealed himself to us. He's not removed. He, uh, Epicureans. He's not everything, pantheists, stoics. He's personal. He's creator. He's knowable and And by the way, you need to know that he's also a judge. 
Look through it right there with me. He says there's a God. Not a bunch of gods. There's one supreme God who is creator. This would have been different for them to hear. Second, he says, he's made everything, including us. And since that is true, does it make sense that we could make a temple? Parthenon? Does it make sense that we could make a temple to house him? Of course not. Next, since he's made everything, I want you to understand that means he's made us. He did it from one man. He doesn't give us his name. His name is Adam. And, and as creator and ruler, he has even determined when and where people should live. Listen to me. God has even determined that you should live and where you live because he's sovereign over your life. We think we're in control. We're not. He is. And by the way, we're not cosmic accidents. We are here because the supreme God has ordained it. Fourth, since he is the creator, he gives us everything. Contrary to that Epicurean belief and deistic belief and maybe even your belief, God is intimately involved with his creation. He has given you life and breath. I want you to, I want you to know that every time you utter his name, in prayer or in blasphemy, he hears it. And since we are the created, we should not think that we can give anything to him. He doesn't need anything you have. Fifth, Paul says, he has a purpose for our lives. His desire actually, having created us, is that we should seek him out. And if we do, we can find him. Because he has revealed himself. He has made himself known to us. He's placed eternity in our hearts. And listen, he is not far from every one of you. He's there. And you know it. Sixth, just for good measure, Paul actually goes on to quote a couple of their poets. Very interesting. He's not giving um, scriptural authority to their pagan poets. Again, he's just building this common ground. He quotes two poets who happen to get a couple of things right. For in him we live and move and exist. Do you hear what I just said? In this supreme God, you live and move and exist. Without him, you wouldn't be here. And another poet, for we are his offspring, or we are his children. Paul is not saying, as many like to say today, everybody is a child of God. And Jesus actually said that most are child of the, children of the devil. We won't get into that. He is simply saying that every one of us have been created in the image of God. Seventh, if that's the case, even as your poets say, how foolish to think that God can be made in an image of silver or gold or like that stone. How foolish. If we have been made in his image, how foolish to think that we can make him in ours. Which brings us to the third part of his message, the invitation, if you will, the call to repentance. And I need you to listen to me this morning. Since all of this is true, since all of this is true, while he has overlooked our ignorance in times past, meaning he has not wiped us out because of our pagan, idolatrous self-worship, this unknown God who can now be known is calling for everyone to repent. Repent. 
To repent means to turn from your sin of ignorant idolatry and to worship the true and the living God. Because lastly, since he is creator, he will also be judge. And he has chosen that he will judge creation by one he has appointed, namely his son Jesus. And he has proven that by raising Jesus from the dead. Do, do you hear Paul's flow of argument? Won't you listen? There's a God. He is creator and provider. And since he is, we are accountable to him. I know you like to be independent. I know you like to be self-dependent. You are not. You are accountable. And you will be judged by a man named Jesus. Which brings us to our last point and our conclusion. The responses to what Paul preached, verses 32, 34. We haven't read those. Look at that with me. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we will hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, just like some of you will do today. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, apparently an important woman, and others with them. As I suggested earlier, I think there are three potential responses here when you hear of the resurrection. First, some began to sneer. They were mocking cynics. Come on, really? When are you going to outgrow this fairy tale? Mocking cynic. Second, some said, we will hear you again concerning this. <laughs> you need to understand, these are people on the, at the Areopagus. This was a polite brush off. These were polite skeptics. Yeah, I like talking about religion. Pass a french fry. Don't really believe it. We've heard enough for now. Maybe, maybe later. Maybe if you can provide some empirical evidence. Maybe, 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 maybe if that shroud is real. Maybe if I could put my fingers in the nail pins in his hands or my hand in his side. And third, we read that some joined Paul and believed. One was a member of the Areopagus, Dionysius, Damaris, others unnamed. Truth, the fact is very few believed. You know, we have no evidence, no evidence that a church in the New Testament, that a church was founded in Athens. How much like the United States is becoming in our pursuit of pleasure and reason. So as we close, which one are you? Do you believe the resurrection this morning? 
I want you to notice something. I have not tried to prove the resurrection to you today. There are some good arguments. There are some good proofs. <coughs> but in the end, it's going to take faith. So if you are a mocking cynic here today, there's not much I can do. It'll take, because it always takes the Holy Spirit of God to move you from cynicism to deal with that eternity in your heart. You know it's there. You know there's a God, no matter how much you try to deny it. He may be unknown to you, but I want you to know he is not far from you, and he is knowable. Maybe you're a polite skeptic. This all sounds very intriguing. Heard it before. But you need to hear more. I can provide some evidence uh, of the resurrection. But in the end, it's still going to take faith. Jesus said to the very first skeptic, Thomas, you believe now because you've seen. Blessed rather are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's my invitation to you. Do you believe in the resurrection? Let's stand for prayer. Father, um, my prayer this morning is that you, by your Spirit, would do a work, the work, that only you can do. I could stand up here for days, and I'll never, ever talk anyone into believing. It takes a work of your Spirit to make them alive in Christ and believe the gospel. And would you help? skeptics and cynics today to move from cynicism and skepticism to faith. Faith in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ.